rather interesting service because I've got several things that I want to bring out in it. And then maybe later you'll be able to write a devotional or a sermon of your own uh, based on all of this material. I hope we can get it in some sort of order. I prayed before I came in that the Lord would be, as we're described, as is described in the book of Genesis, the Holy Spirit brooded over the chaos of the uncreated world and brought it into order. And so that's what I'm praying for this morning. Now tomorrow is something of a macabre anniversary because on August the 6th, 1945, the first atomic bomb exploded over a civilian population in Hiroshima, Japan. Those of us who have had something to do with the study of the effects of such a tremendous thing as this unleashed upon the world have looked back to think about how it all came about and the great power that was unleashed. And then we begin to wonder about the men who made it and the men who have to live and the men and women all over the world who are affected by it. The period of history beginning from December the 2nd, 1942, at exactly 3.25 p.m. Chicago time, was when the first self-sustaining chain reaction releasing nuclear energy was achieved by the scientist Enrico Fermi and his colleagues in a converted squash court under the grandstands of an athletic field at the University of Chicago. The atomic age was toasted in by the small assemblage present that Wednesday afternoon with Italian red wine doled out in paper cups and was announced by a coded telephone message to an absent associate, quote, the Italian navigator has landed in the new world. And then on July the 16th, 1945, and because I lived out in Texas, and you could hear even some rumors from people about this time, there was a tremendous explosion that occurred in the mountains of New Mexico early in the morning that lighted up all of the arroyas in the canyons for miles and miles around. The distinguished scientists who had been assembled there from many parts of the world who had participated in the development of this awesome power were themselves stricken by the sheer terror of the force unleashed. One of the men, Julius Robert Oppenheimer, cited a Hindu mystic as saying that the power of the Almighty, which was brighter than a thousand suns, had been released. There was fear on the part of some who watched that the enormous fireball that climbed up into the air would keep on enveloping and enveloping and enveloping until a whole world would be caught up in it. Reason had been shocked to such an extent by what had taken place in that tremendous moment. And then, of course, just a few days later when that bomb fell on Hiroshima, and then on August the 9th, 
when the second bomb was dropped, and then World War II suddenly came to an end, and men and women began to be concerned about this light brighter than a thousand suns and this force which is so great that we talk about salt too today and wonder what's going to happen in the world. We talk about the energy that could come from nuclear power reactors and wonder if it really can safely be used. And there are those who give to it great titles as though it were something almost a part of God himself. Well, of course, I don't believe that it is a part of God. But I know that God created man and that he is the maker of heaven and earth and that God has spoken. He has spoken through patriarch and through prophet, through psalmist, through apostle. He has spoken best and fullest of all in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that if ever these awesome powers that are unleashed in our world are to be controlled or used, we must have contact with the one who appeared to Saul of Tarsus when he was on the road to Damascus. And he saw, too, a light brighter than a thousand suns. And he too shuddered and fell to the ground, awestruck in terror. And he saw a light. He heard a voice. And what came from that encounter has changed the whole course of Western civilization, indeed the whole history of the entire world. You see, this man Saul of Tarsus had been a great enemy of Jesus of Nazareth. As a Pharisee, he was a person who could recite verbatim all of the first five books of Moses. He knew the Psalter, all 150 Psalms, by heart. He knew, too, that one day Messiah would come. But this Jew could not possibly accept the fact that one who was accursed and hung upon a tree could really be the Son of God. Although he had studied at the feet of Gamaliel, brilliant, educated, dedicated, and devout, to him it was the ultimate blasphemy to say that this Jesus of Nazareth was actually God incarnate in human flesh. And so when you begin to study the book of Acts and you see those earliest followers of the Lord Jesus, when they are empowered by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, begin to preach and to teach and transformations take place. The hierarchy in Jerusalem has to conceive some plan to do something about this, to stop this hideous blasphemy. Because they keep using a name they keep speaking the name of Jesus. They beat them and tell them to speak no more in that name. Repeatedly this happens. A man is healed miraculously at the beautiful gate. And when people come to John and to Peter and speak to them about it, they tell the assembled crowd 
that this man was not healed through any power that they possess, but that he was healed through the power of the name of Jesus. This same Jesus, who had been crucified by many of those same people who were there in Jerusalem. And so, Saul of Tarsus finally takes it upon himself to be the one who will eradicate this horrible heresy, this ultimate blasphemy. And there comes the martyrdom of Stephen. And we read how Saul is present when they, those who stone Stephen to death because he testifies that Jesus has been the fulfillment of the prophets and that Jesus himself has superseded the temple which to them was the holiest of all places. And yet they know that Jesus once said, destroy this temple speaking of himself. And in three days, it will be built again. It will rise again. And blasphemy against the temple was grounds for stoning to death. And so Stephen was executed and Saul consented to his death. And so that brings us to where we pick up our story today and where we learn how to find the force which can harness the men who unleash the terrible powers that are existent in the world today. We see this because Saul of Tarsus, breathing out threatenings, we are told, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, and that is Jesus went to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, by now it is called a way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And later, when Paul is giving the account of his conversion, before a Jewish puppet king and a Roman governor, he looks back upon those days before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and says that he compelled many to blaspheme the name of Jesus. And then he relates to them the story of his conversion, which is of such tremendous importance that it occurs three times in the book of Acts, here in chapter 9 and again in chapter 22. And again in chapter 26, it's an important thing to remember. And you know what happens when he falls to the ground and the great light has shone round about him. And he hears that voice speaking to him. That voice speaking to him in the tongue which he understood so well calling him by name, and with emphasis twice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It all begins to come into focus now. For when Stephen had died, his face had been like the face of an angel. For when Stephen had been stoned to death, Stephen had looked up and had seen Jesus standing waiting to receive him. And Saul of Tarsus was there. 
And in the midday sun on that road to Damascus, I think he never got Stephen out of his mind, nor did he ever get that face of an angel out of his mind. And then he began to think more and more about this. And when that voice said to him, why do you persecute me? We are taught a tremendous lesson. Anytime you hurt one of Jesus' people, you are hurting Jesus himself. When Margaret Wilson and Margaret McLaughlin were tied to stakes out in the Solway Tide, where, as covenanters, they were to be drowned for their faith, the younger woman was put back further so that she could see the older woman engulfed by the tide and drowned first. And they thought that the younger woman would become afraid. She was only 16 or 17 years of age at the time. And the horrible inquisitors who were seeking to get her to give up her covenanting faith in Jesus Christ said to her as she saw the suffocating tide drowned her sister in Christ, what do you see? And she said, I see Jesus dying in one of his servants, suffering in one of his servants. So you never hurt a servant of Jesus without hurting Jesus at the same time. And this means that we should begin to show love toward one another in a different way than we often do. Now look at it for a moment. What did he do? He saw the Lord. He, he said, Who art thou, Lord? He saw Jesus. He saw the Lord. You remember Isaiah in the sixth chapter, John Akers was talking about it in his Sunday school lesson this morning? That in the year when King Uzziah died, that he had gone into the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Well, Saul of Tarsus saw the Lord and when he saw the Lord, he also began to see himself. Now, I want to stop here for a moment because I want to speak about transcendence. We live in a time when there is a great deal of shallow, superficial worship. When we sing mindless little ditties that do not really reflect, reflect the worship of God. When we come into church, are we really hoping and praying that God will speak to us from his word and that his Holy Spirit will do something to work in us, a work of grace. At the University of British Columbia, a few weeks ago, there are 26,000 students at that university. I walked out one day and I saw people caught up in mystic religions, seeking some mystic experience. And I wondered, why is it that those of us in the church do not really preach the gospel knowing and feeling that God is here, the Holy Spirit is here, that Jesus is in this place, that mighty things can happen, that sins can be forgiven, that lives can be transformed and changed. Do we really see the Lord? 
the films that come out, Close Encounters with the Third Kind. These are all secularists reaching out for some experience of transcendence. And if there was ever a time when we ought to be preaching the power of the transcendent God reaching to this wayward world about to destroy and to blow up part of it, it's today. He saw the Lord. And when he saw the Lord, like Isaiah, who said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of, the, of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we come close to the Lord, we see ourselves. We see ourselves in that light that comes from the Lord. You remember that time when Jesus saw Peter and his brother mending their nets. You remember how they had fished that night and caught nothing and Jesus told them to push their little boat out into the lake and let down for another draft. And you remember Peter in his impetuous way said, Lord, we toiled all night last night and didn't catch a thing. And then justice impulsively said, nevertheless, at thy will, we'll let down the nets. And they did, and then they weren't able to draw in for the huge, miraculous draft of fishes that had been caught. And you know what happens next? Peter falls at the feet of Jesus and says, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. He felt his unworthiness. Well, Jesus can take sinful men. He can make them into new creations. He can take that woman at the well who said that when Messiah comes, he will reveal all things to us, and he can change her. He can take Zacchaeus and change him. He can even take this person bent on the destruction of the church and make him the greatest exponent of the faith who has ever walked upon the face of the earth. That one little tiny hunchback crooked-nosed Jew has turned the whole world upside down because of the transforming power of Christ that met him that day on the road to Damascus. What else did he see? He saw the church. He saw the church. He was led away, blind, you remember, into the city of Damascus to the street called Straight, to the house of a man named Judas. But there was a, there was a believer. There was a member of the church, the church of the firstborn, the church of the secondborn, those who are born again, a man by the name of Ananias who was praying, and the Lord spoke to Ananias and told him that Saul of Tarsus had met Jesus on his way to Damascus and that Ananias was to go to him and to place his hands upon him so that he might recover his sight. And this is one of the most beautiful passages in all of the New Testament when you see 
how obedient Ananias is. And Ananias went, you remember he remonstrated with the Lord at first. He said, but Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. And the Lord, that is Jesus, said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name, the name of Jesus, to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, and entering into the house, and putting his hands on him, he said, Saul, my brother. Now think of this. Paul is blind. He has been struck by this tremendous experience on the road. For three days and nights he has eaten nothing. And then he feels the touch of a loving hand. And a person who would have been afraid of him says to him, Saul, my brother, Jesus has appeared to me. Do you see the church there? That's the church. Saul, my brother. Those who are in Jesus can touch each other and feel the love of Jesus emanating. And then, of course, his sight returned to him and he was baptized the Holy Spirit filled him and he becomes this great proponent of the gospel what else does he see he sees the Gentiles he sees those who are outside and they are going to be reached and later we'll be studying some more about how he reaches them he reaches them outside so he saw the Lord, so he saw himself, so he saw the church, and so he sees also the need of the world about him. We need to have this power coming into our minds and into our hearts and lives so that we may reach others for Jesus too. We need this so much. Out at Regent College, there are great admirers of C.S. Lewis and Jim Houston, who is the president of Regent College, knew C.S. Lewis. There were many books there about C.S. Lewis. Many of you know, of course, that Lewis was that brilliant person who was a professor of Renaissance literature at Cambridge and who was also a great Oxford scholar and who will go down as one of the greatest men in letters ever to write the English language. His, I believe his Narnia books alone have sold over a million copies. He has tremendous influence. And yet he had been an atheist. And somehow God began to reach him. A person who was opposed to him is going to be reached and changed 
There was J.R.R. Tolkien, who was one of his literary friends, who was a Christian, a Roman Catholic Christian, who had a great influence upon Lewis. Lewis dedicates the screw tape letters to him. There are other friends, Charles Williams. There was the reading of George MacDonald. And then he begins to believe that God is transcendent, and yet he has decided to come into this world in Jesus Christ, and even to reach him. And when you read this picture of his conversion, I think about Saul of Tarsus. Let Lewis describe it. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene. That's one of the colleges at Oxford. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in. I admitted that God was God. I knelt and prayed. And perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates of heaven to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and screaming and struggling, resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? The words compelled them to come in have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them, but properly understood they plumbed the depths of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberty. And when we yield to him, what a difference it makes. And now I have a confession to make. My children have begged me for years to read books which I bought for them to read. The Narnia books. And in C.S. Lewis's Narnia books, some of you will know the story, and I've just got a second or two to skim real quickly into this. I can remember as a little boy going to visit a certain grand, one of my grandfathers, an old German, and he had an old wardrobe in his house, and I used to climb in that wardrobe as a little kid, you know, three or four years old, five. We'd get in that wardrobe, and is something wonderful like going into another world. Well, Lewis, through his children's books, is able to show us how another world enters into us and how Christ enters into us. I never cared a whole lot for fantasy literature until some big psychologist, Bruno Bietelheim, said that if we did not read healthy fantasy, then we fantasized about evil stuff, and so we were better to read good healthy fantasy. And, and so it's a good idea to give your children this. If you remember, uh, this, this is going to show you a theophany, a 
presentation of Christ and how he speaks in a way that will parallel to what our lesson has been this morning. It's about Jill, who is an unbeliever. And Jill is not a believer, and she gets to go into the land of Narnia, this strange land where animals talk. I hope that won't bother you that they talk. Uh, but they talk for a good reason. And she gets to, to go there. And as she goes there with her friend, whose name is Scrub, uh, she doesn't really at first believe the things that he has said, but she has been put upon by some of her friends at school, and she needs the encouragement that he can bring to her. And so he is able to encourage her to go with him into the land of Narnia because he wants her to meet Aslan, the lion. And she's not so sure about that. But she goes into the land of Narnia, and uh, it's interesting. Uh, can we come back? Is it safe, said Jill. At that moment, a voice shouted from behind, a mean, spiteful little voice. Now then, Pole, it squeaked, everyone knows you're there, you come down. It was the voice of Edith Jackal, not one of them herself, but one of the hangers-on. Quick, said Scrub, here, hold hands. We mustn't get separated. And before she quite knew what was happening, he had grabbed her hand and pulled her through the door, out of the school grounds, out of England, out of all our whole world, into that other place. And now they go into the other place. And when they get into this other place, Jill, like some little girls are inclined to be, is a little bit of a show-off. And she comes to a place where there is a cliff. Right ahead there were no trees, only a blue sky, and they went straight on without speaking till suddenly Jill heard Scrub say, Look out! And then she felt herself jerked back. They were at the very edge of a cliff. Jill was one of those lucky people who have a good head for heights. And she didn't mind in the least standing on the edge of a precipice. She was rather annoyed with Scrub for pulling her back. Just as if I was a kid, she said. And she wrenched her hand out of his. And when she saw how very white he had turned, she despised him. You see, she's a little show off. What's the matter, she said. And to show that she was not afraid, she stood very near to the edge indeed, and in fact a good deal nearer than even she liked. That's often the case. Then she looked down, and then she realized that Scrub had some excuse for looking white, for no cliff in our world is to be compared with this. Imagine yourself at the top of the very highest cliff, and imagine you're looking down to the very bottom. And then imagine that the precipice goes on down, 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 below that as far again, ten times, twenty times. And when you've looked down all that distant, imagine little white things that might at first glance be mistaken for sheep. But presently you realize they're clouds. Not little wreaths of mist, but enormous white puffy clouds, which are themselves as big as most mountains. And at last, in between these clouds, you get your first glimpse of the real bottom so far away that you can't make out whether it's a field or a wood or land or water further below those clouds than you are above them. Jill stared at it. 
Then she thought that perhaps after all she would step back a foot or so from the edge. But she didn't like to for fear of what Scrub would think. Then she suddenly decided that she didn't care what he thought and that she would jolly well get away from that horrible edge and never laugh at anyone for not liking heights again. But when she tried to move, she found she couldn't. Her legs seemed to have turned into putty, and everything was swimming before her eyes. Well, to skip over this, she starts to slip, and Scrub reaches for her and saves her while she's showing off, but he falls. But just as he falls, she feels a big, strong breath blow from in back of her. And she sees her little friend falling all the way down, and it breaks her heart. And she cries. She realizes that her own silliness has caused this to take place. And so when she realizes this, and is so sad and crying about it, she suddenly is conscious of the fact that something in, is in back of her. And then it dawns on her that what is in back of her is a lion. And that lion is Aslan. And that's the Christ figure. And without a glance at Jill, the lion rose to its feet and gave one last blow. Then as if satisfied with its work, it turned and walked slowly away back into the forest. Oh, it must be a dream. It must, it must, said Jill to herself. I'll wake up in a moment, but it, but it wasn't a dream. And she didn't wake up. I do wish we'd never come to this dreadful place, said Jill. I don't believe Scrub any more than you about it than I do, or if he did, he had no business to bring me here without warning me what it was like. It's not my fault he fell over that cliff. If he had left me alone, we should both be all right. Then she remembered again the scream that Scrub had given when he fell. And so she burst into tears. Now this is an important thing to remember because all of us face grief. Crying is all right in its way while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later. And then you still have to decide what to do. When Jill stopped, she found she was dreadfully thirsty. She had been lying face downward, and now she sat up. And the birds had ceased singing, and there was perfect silence, except for one small persistent sound, which seemed to come from a great distance. And she listened carefully and felt almost sure that it was the sound of delicious running water, and she was so thirsty. Jill got up and looked around very carefully. There was no sign of the lion. But there were many trees. And so, for all she knew, there might be several lions lurking in those trees. But her thirst was so incredible that she plucked up her courage to go and look for the running water, and she went on tiptoe, stealing cautiously from tree to tree, stooping to peer around at every step. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. The water sounded so good it grew clearer every moment and sooner than she expected she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf, a stone's throw away from her. 
But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone, with her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it, like the lions in Trafalgar Square. If you've been to London, you've seen those lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away. You ever watch that Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer lion in the movies turn away? If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, she thought. And if I go, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she couldn't be sure. It seemed like hours. The thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion, if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. This is the way people are when they're coming to the Lord. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. Remember Jesus in the Gospel of John telling us that if we're thirsty, to come and drink? Of course she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world, and she realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man. It was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? <laughs> now that's the way people are. They want what Jesus has without wanting Jesus. They want him to go away, but they want to drink his water. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless book, she looked, bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. And then that delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? Do you ever make any deals with Jesus? Do you promise not to do anything to me? I make no promises, said the lion. If you're truly converted, Jesus makes no promises. All he offers you is himself. Remember that. Jill was so thirsty by now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. Now listen to this, and you can see the great power of Christ. 
I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. That's just like Jesus in John 14, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream and knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Isn't that wonderful? Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she'd finished drinking. And now she realized that this would be on the whole the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood with her lips still wet from drinking. Come here, said the lion. And she had to. She was almost between its two front paws now looking straight into its face. But she couldn't stand that for long. Human child, said the lion, where is the boy? You see, Jesus makes you confess your sins. He fell over the cliff, said Jill. And then she added, sir. She didn't know what else to call him. And it, and it sounded cheeky to call him nothing. How did he come to do that, human child? He was trying to stop me from falling, sir. Why were you so near the edge, human child? I was showing off, sir. That is a very good answer, human child. Do so no more. And now, and here for the first time, the lion's face became a little less stern. The boy is safe. I have blown him to Narnia. But your task will be the harder because of what you have done. Now then you'll have to read the rest of the book <laughs> to, to get the task. But this is what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. And this is why I had Anne sing the song a while ago and why I wanted you to realize the importance of that song. I came to Jesus as I was, weary, worn, and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. I came to Jesus, and I drank of that life-giving stream. My soul was quenched. My thirst was quenched. My soul revived, and now I live in him. I've kept you over time, so I'll just pronounce the benediction. Stand up, and I'll pray. Our Heavenly Father, there are some of us here this morning who want what Jesus has to offer because we'd like to see these terrible things that we have unleashed through our brilliant 
exploits in physics and technology. But we don't want to come to Jesus. Help us to see that that's the dumbest thing we can ever do. Help us to know that if we're willing to accept the attitude that we will come to him and drink of that life-giving stream, that he will quench the thirst of our souls and that he will help us to bring that light of men into the whole wide world so that we can know you and love you, so that we can see ourselves and know that you accept us, and so that we can accept one another in the church in love, and so that we can reach out to the world about us and bring that thirsty, crazy world under the Lordship of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the conversion of Paul. We thank you, Father, for the conversion of C.S. Lewis. And we pray that you will help us to apply these lessons to our own minds and hearts and lives, to our wives, to our husbands, to our children, to the people with whom we